Hi, y'all. Um, welcome to the Search for Pink podcast. I am your host, Rebecca Botter. Um, if you have not met me, um, I feel like this is the moment where I'm like, the Search for Pink podcast, where we search for the positivity in every day. Um, no, but whenever I email a, a guest, I usually tell them it's following a creative in their journeys and I'm confused about my own and so I've used them to help me figure out what's going on. Just getting us off to a lovely start. Um, you just clicked on this. How about you give us five stars? If you're like, I don't know, I haven't listened to it yet, let me tell you. It's like making a reservation at a restaurant. This is the same thing. Please leave me five stars right now. Thank you. Okay, guys, Emily Palmer. Emily is a musician. She is an actor. She's one of those fabulous multi-creative hat-wearing people. As actors in this industry, we have to wear all the hats, um, producer and work and whatnot, and Emily has been doing that. I am really excited to talk to her. We have, um, there's my cat. Um, We have a lot of mutual friends. I started following her during quarantine, and I've just heard fabulous things about her. So she's an Instagram friend, which I appreciate. Um, She's a Tennessee gal now, which I am very close to my heart. Um, And yeah, she seems really lovely. I'm really excited. And I always like brag on guests who like follow through because it's really hard to get these scheduled. And I asked her like a month or so ago and she said yes. And then she followed up and she was like, now I am free. Let us do this. And I was like, gosh, I love people being direct. Anyways, Emily is on Cobra Kai and that is really cool. It's interesting because I feel like she's always sharing like, hey guys, check me out on this. Check me in on this. And people are just DMing her so much about being on their YouTube shows. So anyways, I'm very curious on what it's like. She's our first guest because I've had actors. I've had actors book quite big shows. That's very cool. But she's the first person I've had on the show that has like a true fan following and like a fandom following because you can be in big projects and be like, oh yeah, I'm a fan of them. They're very talented. But she's got like a proper big following. She's also done um, projects like The Last Sun. You've probably heard of Mercy Street. Um, There's also American Horror Story, which is ridiculously cool. Dude, she's everywhere. I'm very curious. What is it like? And I'm guessing if you're in that fandom, hello, um, Betsy's awesome. We can both agree on that. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. And um, I love you guys, and I'm going to do a great job. That's um, for anyone that's new to this. I always tell myself I'm going to do a great job because sometimes I get a little anxious. Um, But I'm not really anxious about this one. Emily seems really cool, and if it wasn't COVID, we definitely would have had a friend date by now. So y'all get to listen to it, and I'm going to do a great job, and bye-bye. Well, I want to say thank you for agreeing to come on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm yeah. so glad that this gave me an opportunity to listen to a full episode of your podcast because I've been wanting to. I love the snippets you share. And, okay. and I'm so grateful you invited me on. Yay. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I want to say I was talking, I was brainstorming with two friends. I think it was Kat, both Kat Barnes and then um, Katerina 
Um, and like, like it was like a couple months ago and I was like, I don't know, like who to have. And, um, I'm always asking friends and both of them were like, Emily, you should have Emily. And at the time I was like, wait, which one's, which one? And, um, they were like, she has great hair. And I was like, yes. (laughs) One thing I want to say is I was looking at your IMDb and it has listed, this is really cool that you were in much to do about nothing at Nashville shakes. That was was my first Shakespeare show I ever saw. Oh, really? Wait, that specific production? Yes. 2012. That's amazing. Yeah. It was my first show and it was such a like fun and like irreverent. I I don't remember it like perfectly, um, but I saw you and now I love Shakespeare. So thank you for that. That makes me so happy to hear. I, that show was really, really, I mean, I feel like this word can be trite and overused, but it really was really magical time in my life and just I met so many people that have stayed in my life and been kind of key pivotal people in my life during that and it also for whatever strange reason the role of hero had always always been kind of a dream role for me I know she's just sort of this side character but I had always wanted to play her and really just loved the show much ado about nothing loved the play and so it was also a dream come true and yeah, I just have the fondest memories of that summer and getting to do that and knowing that my path would someday cross with someone who had been in the audience and it was their first one. That's really, really even more magical. (laughs) Yeah, no. And it's become like a huge passion of mine. So, um, you just, you never know, you know, what kind of impact you're going to have on people. And I didn't realize that till last night. So I was like typing up some things I wanted to talk about. And I was like, I've got to start with this. Um, cause you've been like a part of my journey. Yeah. Um, I know. So, okay. So, cause I'm all over the place as if you listen to an episode, you kind of figured that out, but, um, (laughs) um, so when did you, where, where did you grow up and when did you start acting? Cause you're also a singer. I feel like that is so important to that journey of yours and how it's so intertwined. So how did that, um, begin for you? Yeah. Okay. So I was actually born in Salt Lake City, Mm -hmm. and I didn't grow up there. We moved away when I was younger than two. I was a year and a half, and then I lived in the South really through all of my growing up years. I lived in um, Alabama, actually, until I was about eight, and then we moved to Middle Tennessee. So I grew up most of my, you know, my teenage years, very formative years were all in Tennessee. So it kind of, Middle Tennessee feels like home to me, but I also, my grandmother and all of my cousins live in East Tennessee, and I have kind of a strong connection to my, like, Appalachian ancestry there, so that feels like home, too, and then there's this other part of me that identifies with the West, because I have a lot of family out there, so I'm I'm kind of a mixture of all Mm. of these places, and I feel like that is manifest in my voice, too. People never know, like, where my accent's from, and I don't either, and half the time I'll say things that sound a little Southern, and other times, you know, my accent is just, even when I take those tests, I don't know if you've ever done one of those, like, New York Times, answer these 30 questions, and we'll tell you what region of the country you're in. When my fiance took that, it literally could pinpoint the town that his parents were from, and where he lived as a child. When I did it, it was totally off. I had no idea where I came from. But I do consider Middle Tennessee my, my home. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess how the journey started 
was I, I always just loved stories and make-believe that was a huge part of my childhood most of my time playing was spent either writing stories or reading books or playing outside I grew I was very fortunate to grow up in a neighborhood with lots of kids and also like right on the edge of just miles and miles of woods and so we would just play in the woods all the time and and that really impacted me just you know I just knew really young that I loved people and stories and it fascinated me how people interact and I don't know just all of the the interesting interplay that happens between people and and creating my own stories was a love I developed pretty early on and yeah I also had this like I've always loved if I find something I really love I always want to share it and I'm kind I can be a bit introverted I'm sort of right on the introvert extrovert line and so I'm not great about sharing a whole lot on social media and online with with the world at large but anyone like in my inner circle knows that if I find something I really love then I will just like talk nonstop about it and get so excited about it and you know I have to share it and um and so I think that like desire to share things that I love and that I find beautiful and inspiring also kind of informed me along that journey of figuring out like oh maybe I've maybe I could be an artist. Maybe I could do that because then I can share these things that I find beautiful and interesting with people. And, and um, yeah, I, I started doing theater when I was young mm-hmm. and just community theater. I was homeschooled most of my life. So I didn't really have the opportunity to do it through school. So I did mostly community theater. And then by the time I was in my mid teens, I was starting to do some semi-professional and, and professional shows. Um, and as far as music, that was never something that I pursued or planned to pursue as my career. I never aspired to be like a singer, a performer, but it's just so much a part of me. I've always loved to sing, to write my own songs since I was tiny. And I didn't learn to play an instrument until I was a little older. And mm. learning the guitar is what really allowed me to actually be able to, like I would have all these songs like swirling around in my head and I would sometimes just sing my own melodies and that worked for me too, because I grew up with this very strong, like Appalachian folk song tradition. Those are the mm-hmm. lullabies my mom would sing to me and you don't have to have an instrument. Like mm-hmm. you just create this repetitive melody and you tell a story with it. And, you know, it's fine if you don't, if you just sing it cappella. But once I learned to play just a few chords on the guitar, that really kind of set me free to be able to actually mm-hmm. um, create songs. And, and I really just do it because I love it. And if I someday am able to have a role that I can sing for, then even better. I'd love to combine the two. And and I, in the past, I did musical theater. So I was mm-hmm. able to kind of combine them in that way. I was thinking as actors, the more actors I talk to, and I think as we get older, we realize like we need something that's ours. Like this podcast is kind of, if um, people listen, they know that this is like, it's important to me because it's mine you know, and I don't have to wait for a person in an office to click on my picture and go like, um, like I have another girl that I already like, and she has the same nose, you know? Um, and so I feel like the, is the music something like that for you where it's just, no one gets to tell you when you get to make it. That's exactly it. I've actually said something very similar to that in a past chat I had with someone. It, it, you took the words out of my mouth. That's the perfect description. And, and I discovered that like, 
it's so freeing to not have those gatekeepers on when you're allowed to create and what you're allowed to create. And for some artists, I do know that that they wouldn't be able to feel fulfilled. It's like, okay, well, I can make my music, but no one's able to hear it. I can't get it out there without making it past those gatekeepers, you know, mm-hmm. and I totally, totally empathize with that too. But, but for me, sometimes just the, the pure elation of that creation process mm-hmm. is enough. And I don't, yeah. you, you know, I might put it out there and maybe four people will listen to it and that's fine. But, but I sometimes just find that process itself to be enough. And it is exactly what you described. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't know, it's exciting to have something that, and it's like, sometimes I'm just like, I get to create it and that's enough. And then sometimes I look at the analytics and I'm like, like I'd like a few more people, but really like getting to connect and create something is, um, I don't know. It's just, it's such a joy. Um, so once, so you were doing musical theater and I read, um, creeping on you that you started college, but you were doing professional work. So you left. Yeah. So I, I, again, very unconventional education and upbringing, but I, finished high school really early. And because I was so young, I didn't want to immediately, this is a whole other story, but my kind of plan had always been to go to university out West where my older sisters had gone. Mm -hmm. And that would have been me at 15, not even able to drive moving out. And and so it just wasn't feasible at the time. And and I decided I'm just going to take you know, time off and I'll go to, I'll do some school online. So I started at a small, like liberal arts university online, still living at home and, and just continued working hard to do theater and follow that path kind of in tandem simultaneously. And, um, it was from there that I just kept getting busier and busier and having more opportunities. And so I decided like, I can always come back to school, you know, I'm still, still, young and I'm just going to follow this out as long as I can and take it as far as I can and you know jump cut to like 12 years later (laughs) but I have not finished school I do love school and love to learn and I would love to someday get my degree but but yeah yeah and I mean yeah you obviously love to learn you wrapped it up at 15 you know um which is really cool I you started an Instagram discussion and I feel like it could be like a forever thing about, um, I, I just, I think it's really interesting because I feel like as we grow as humans and as we grow as young people and what we have been taught about, like right and wrong, isn't the right thing, but like our emotions and our gut, um, and like whether our feelings are, you know, what's supposed to dictate, um, how we live life. I was wondering if like, how that has changed throughout your life has affected like how you approach acting and the decisions you make about school and your career and whatnot. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at a very non-conclusive place with how I feel about all of it. You know, I'm, I'm not at all. And, and in fact, when I did that, when I posed that question, I did have at least one person kind of, I feel like thought I was posing the question from a place of, I know, I know what's right. And I know what the answer to this is. Does anyone else like know the secret? Right. I I didn't have very many people that, that, you know, offered answers or, or seemed to think like, look, 
this is what I thought once, and I know this is right now. There were some people that had, had very much those kind of black and white um, stances on it. For me, I, I feel like it is such a complex and new, nuanced question that mm-hmm. I can't say I'm like squarely on one side or the other. My, I have definitely developed, um, I was very much raised with the, the idea that you're, and some people I feel like who are in that same faith tradition that I was raised in would say like, well, that's not actually correct. You weren't taught that your emotions can identify truth reliably. They would say it's not your emotions. It's, you know, the Holy Spirit. It's that, mm-hmm. that convicting you or, or telling you that something's true or right. Um, but for me and probably for many other people who, who, experience that or were raised in that as well it's very hard to differentiate the two or to ever know if you can differentiate the two you know how how do I know for certain that this is an emotion coming from me or it is a leading it's a divine you know prompting coming from outside of me that I'm experiencing as a positive emotion mm-hmm. so so it's just a really complex topic and and I don't know exactly where <laughs> where I, I, I fall because I see value in both sides and, and Instagram discussion was really helpful in, in just seeing the benefits of both ways of looking at emotion and how they can lead us. No, I really, really appreciated it because I was raised um, in the South. So the Bible Belt, and there have been some things that have like come to mind recently where I felt that what I probably would have thought was conviction when I was growing up, where I have like this immediate shame and I've grown a lot, but it's kind of like those moments of shame that have been coming and, or fear. And I've just kind of had to process like, is this actually like, um, like thoughts and things that have been trained into me since I was born and I'm not wanting to put this on you, um, or anyone else. Then that's when the church that I was raised in would have said like, well, like that's the world, like making you think that this is right, or this is something. And so it's not even like the shame that's been trained into me. It's also then there was an answer that was trained into me too when I start to like question it or like you know and so it's like this double roadblock like it's really hard when you've been raised with all of those things and and you're kind of like given I don't know if this was your experience so again don't I have a feeling that we had a similar one um I I kind of sense that yeah, yeah I'm sure there was a lot of crossover um but it's almost like you're giving the ground rules for what's true, what's right. And if you have emotional manifestations, feelings that agree with that, then you know you're hearing the Holy Spirit. You know what you're hearing is, is a true, you know, a force that you can trust. Mm-hmm. But if you get one of those feelings that feels good and powerful and it happens to contradict what that in church dogma or doctrine, or even just the church culture says that's deception. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is Satan or the world or, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. so that's really confusing when you're given that, that um, framework growing up and you're told that like, you can trust those things, but only if they confirm what we think that you should believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really messes with your ability, I think, to trust yourself. And, and I even growing up, so this is how we'll tie it all back to your original question. I'm Let's sorry for the it. long tangent. <laughs> no, you're but, but growing up, I I did have such a strong connection to my 
to my feelings. And that's, I lived my life instinctually, a hundred percent. You know, if I felt like I should do something, I would follow it wherever it led. And that led me to some really great things that opened a lot of doors. That was a positive thing for the most part in my life. But I've had experiences since I've grown older where I have been able to verify and confirm without a doubt that feelings I had that I thought were telling me this or that thing was true Mm -hmm. were wrong. Mm -hmm. And they were not telling, they were not accurately Mm -hmm. (laughs) predicting Mm -hmm. the truth uh, or the the, uh, falsehood of something. And that really messed with my ability to trust my inner voice. Because it's like, if I can be so catastrophically mistaken about something so big, based on those feelings, that's a problem. (laughs) And so that can really lead, and I think does lead people, um, I definitely dealt with this and I've I've kind of worked through it and come out on the other side, but that can definitely lead people totally away from ever trusting their own feelings Mm -hmm. and needing to just rely on hard, cold facts and data, you know, to make any decision. But that definitely, if you have something disrupt that really delicate, relationship with your instinct and your inner voice that can really mess with your art if you particularly I think if you're any kind of artist but especially as an actor like we rely on that instinct so much and so if you start to get divorced from that it that's really difficult um so my relationship with it has definitely changed over the years but I I would argue that I think that my art is better now because of it I think that I'm able to connect with it in a, a more open and humble way than I was before when I when I thought when I thought that that could reliably help me know everything. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? You know, and it, it's so funny because like I, as like a pious little like sixteen year old, I was kind of like, how lucky am I that I already have all the answers? And then it really took a lot of it was like kind of getting getting the crap kicked out of me by like the world and I that it was kind of like oh wait I can't cling to all of this and I love how you tied it into acting because so much of it is working off of instincts and present being present and then emotion but then since you've grown as a person and you've grown in your beliefs and what you think about certain things you're now a more empathetic person, you know, if you, you know, you, I'm, I have a stutter, you know what I mean? I think that's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely sense that our paths have have had a lot of crossover and been very similar in many ways because I sense that same thing in you. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's like, it's, there's a lot of good that's come from it and, um, and it's been hard and I'm still kind of processing some of it, but yeah, when you pose that question, I had actually reached out to a friend where I was like, we need to discuss like my relationship with faith and then what I'm processing right now. And I was messaging her about something really similar. So anyways, I appreciate um, you being so open about it. I, okay, well, let's like kind of keep with that thread, something that I was actually having a talk with, um, with a friend was about like comparison and how our journeys haven't all turned out the way that we've hoped to. 
I saw on your IMDb page that like you were being considered for like a role in Les Mis and that like I believe that you've been up for some pretty big opportunities that would have taken you on a really different path and how have those like emotions and beliefs helped you kind of navigate like these really high highs and then these like disappointments yeah yeah um so very briefly about Les Mis that was a long time ago (laughs) way way before I had an agent or like knew how to do film or get into it at all it was just that they had they hosted a big like open call in New York City and that's actually where I met Erin Boswell. Oh my one goodness. Of the co-founders of VST, Vermont City Theater in Atlanta. And um, yeah, we had a like magical serendipitous first meeting there. I I was, I believe everyone just kind of came in to audition for both roles. They were technically having an open call for Cosette and Anthony. Um, but we were all in the same room. And I just remember seeing Erin from across the room and she had this beautiful blue coat. And you know, Erin is this beautiful person and her lovely hair, her brown hair and her blue eyes just like popped and sparkled. They, they popped. Coat. Yeah. Yes. And I just saw her all the way across the room and I don't even remember what exactly I said. She might, but, um, but at some point I just like came across the room and, and introduced myself and I just said like, you look so beautiful in that coat or I love that coat on you, something like that. Um, but her, yes, that just her presence, she totally just sparkled from across the room. And I'm so glad that I was crazy enough to go to New York City for an open call because I met Erin. Um, but I did, I want to say, I can't remember the exact amount, but I there, there maybe were like three to 500 people there. And I did end up being one of just a handful that got asked to submit a tape, like a callback tape um, to the casting in, in London. And looking back on it now, like at the time it felt like I was really like close, you know, mm-hmm. because, um, because of that happening. But looking back on it now, you know, with the experience that I've had over the years since I was probably a lot further than I thought from like, <laughs> ever really being in their consideration for the role you know I've done nothing I've done no film at all just theater um and you know how it is in the industry oftentimes it's like they cast an unknown in this big franchise and you go to their IMDb page and they've done some really significant indie stuff and you know what I mean like unknown often doesn't actually mean a girl from Nashville who flew to New York City for the first time in her life and went to an open call, you know, it can, but I do think it, it's really rare. Um, so that was, that's the kind of the little quick synopsis of what happened there. But, um, but yeah, as far as comparison and navigating those ups and downs, I actually, the episode of your podcast that I listened to is your conversation with Erica, I think Miranda. Yeah, she's the best. It was so good. It was such a good lovely conversation I felt like I was like there with you guys because yeah just a lovely discussion of all of these kinds of things and navigating those ups and downs beautifully and (laughs) with grace for yourself and as I listened to your conversation about this topic I was reminded of this experience that I had when I was 18 I had been studying in um at like this little school in Paris and after I finished my little certificate, my little course there, I had a few weeks to just travel. And so I went to Scotland and 
my cousin and I were there together. We were staying in this little tiny cottage in this remote village of probably a hundred people on the North Sea. So our little like cottage we were staying in was right on the sea. And it was really inexpensive to go there because it was December in Scotland, not exactly like <laughs> where you want to be in December on the North Sea. We had like six hours of daylight every day, but we had this just like rugged, wild coastline that was all ours just to explore. And it was like just us and the seals and the sheep. And we would both just go out for these long walks. And I was out on my own one day and I saw in kind of nestled in this hillside with overgrown grass all around it, a door, this old door looking like it led down into a cellar or something. And, and I mean, this is a place with like ruins of castles. This, this whole place is just full of mystery. And this door, I just became fixated on it. I was like so fascinated by this door in the hillside and I wanted to know where it led. And so for a few days, I like went on walks and I always go past and look at the door and inspect it. And finally, I was like, you know what? I don't care whose property I'm on. I, I want to see if I can open this door and get in there and find what's in, in this secret cellar on the coast of the North Sea. And so finally I did it and I grabbed this door and I like heave it open. And to my surprise, it lifts and it's literally just a door laying there. <laughs> there was just an old door laying on this hillside that over the years had become overgrown and looked all mysterious and looked like it would lead down to this secret cellar, you know, but it was just a door. And the mystery was dispelled. And as I've gone through the past few years in, you know, pursuing this crazy, crazy path of an artist, that's very much what I've realized. It's like all of these milestones that to us hold so much power. And if we could just do that one thing, if we could just get this size of role, whether if we could just get a guest star, if we could just get our if we just finish our degree, or if we could just get a series regular, if we could just get in some beautiful, important indie piece, it doesn't even have to do well. If we could just get that role. We have this idea that like, that they're different than, than they are once we actually get them, once we actually open the door. Like, not, you're going to be exactly the same person mm -hmm. once you get that role as you are right now, you know? Um, unless, unless you choose to, <laughs> unless you choose to, to develop yourself and to grow. Like those, those experiences don't just necessitate growth. They don't force you to grow, you know? And so, so I've always like held on to that little memory and that moment of feeling like ridiculous. That was <laughs> having a so beautiful. For days. <laughs> and that's very much how like my career has felt. And I don't say that in a depressing way, like none of it's good in the end. It's not yeah. that at all. It's actually a really freeing thing of like, I could, I could win an Oscar and I won't feel any different than I do about having done this short film that I made. You know what I mean? Like that's mm -hmm. very possible. And I, and when you hear interviews and, and read, uh, you know, words of people who have like reached these pinnacles of what we see as artistic achievement, that's very much like often what they describe. I feel like is that, is that like, you still have the insecurities you had the day before you won that award, you know? Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I don't know if that story would have any value to anyone else. But oh my, no, that story is beautiful, and I wish I would have heard that at eighteen because it probably would have saved me a lot of heartbreak. There's a story that Jennifer Lawrence said, like the night she won the Oscar, she was like back at her apartment and like drunk with her friends, and she's holding her Oscar, and she goes like, "What does it all mean?" You know, because she's holding the thing. That, you know, like she would have thought would have fixed everything. And I had, I studied abroad in the UK and my friends will tell you leading up to those, as soon as I decided I wanted to do it, I like obsessed and I was very much like, this is what it's all been leading to getting into this school. And if I could get into the school and I did after two tries and it was this huge moment for me. And one of the biggest heartbreaks was I was like, I never thought in the world I would get into this school. So since I have that, now I'm off to the rest of my life. But the rest of my life looks very, very similar to, I think, what was going on before school, you know? And it was that lesson of like, oh, it's it's just me, you know? And it's, it's good. It's good. I'm so glad I had, it was such a transformative moment personally but it didn't have the effect I thought it would in the the real world you know yes yes I relate to that very much and I think that's like I'm I'm no I'm not an expert at all on on subjects like self-love and self-care I am my own worst critic I'm very very harsh and self-critical and that's something I work on a lot but but it's just you know, you talked about having that realization of like, oh, it's just me. And I think that's where that comes in. Because if you're able to completely shift your own narrative and relationship and idea of yourself, then it's like, oh, I went through this. I got this good thing, or maybe this bad thing happened to me, but it's still me, you know? And I'm excited about me and whatever comes or doesn't come my way, I'm still going to be me and I'm going to make this work because I have these qualities that I admire and I am developing in myself. You know what I mean? It's just like changing that relationship with yourself can, can make all the difference. I think. Yeah. Can I ask just Nosy, like when you're hard on yourself, is it like you film the audition like 40 times and then your partner's like, no, it's good. And you're like, no, I have to do it. Like, like what is it that you get hard on yourself about? You know, it's less so that I, I did maybe have more of that like uh, nitpicky kind of thing about my auditions in the past. I've kind of grown out of that as I've seen, like as I've experienced more and seen how the way I watch my work and interpret my work is not necessarily how it's going to be viewed by casting or anyone else receiving it. And I have gotten pretty good at just letting go and being like, I feel like I did my best. I'm going to let them decide what they think about it. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. by the same token, like I'll sometimes make a tape I feel really good about and excited about and I'll send it off and my manager will be like, I really think you have better and you let's try this again. You know what I mean? So, so I actually have, to my own credit, gotten pretty good at just doing my best I can and being good with that and not like overanalyzing and nitpicking. Because um, I don't think that lets you capture something that's true to life at all. Mm-hmm. If you're like, manipulating every choice you make and saying, oh, oh, that one, that choice wasn't right in the moment. I need to go back and fix that one. 
but I liked everything else in the take. So now I'm going to have to try and mimic all of those other choices I made. You know what I mean? Like, yes, that to me just, I don't even want to go down that path. So, so I have worked through the years and gotten away from that a lot. Um, but yeah, my, when I say I'm self-critical about myself, it's, it's maybe mostly just rooted in the fact that I've always had really high expectations for myself mm-hmm. and even like unrealistic ones. Are you familiar with the Enneagram at all? I love the Enneagram. I'm a four wing <laughs> five. Um, what oh, are you? That's such a beautiful combination. My, my sister and like bosom best friend in life is a five wing four. Okay. So, I, uh, so I, I love, love both. Such an interesting one. Um, I am a one wing two. Ooh. So I always thought I was a two because every test I ever took, I tested as a two. Um, and it wasn't until I did like deeper reading, um, that I realized like I am 100% a one. I just (laughs) have always thought that qualities of a two are what I need to have and what I should be. And so I have like molded myself into someone that looks like a two, (laughs) you know? So, so I definitely identify you know, I, we can, we can get into the science of whether, whether or not the Enneagram is totally accurate or could be trusted, or if people can really be divided into nine groups, but, um, but it's been really an interesting, helpful tool for me personally. And, and yeah, one wing too. Mm. I, I, it's very common for like stereotypically women, especially in the South to be misdiagnosed as a two. I thought I was because an unhealthy four acts like an unhealthy two, which is manipulative. And like, do you love me? Do you love me? Like I need, I need that validation constantly. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, I, I was diagnosed, but no, I thought I was a two for a while because of my unhealthy behaviors. And as I've gotten more and more healthy, I actually was talking to Aaron Boswell, who we were talking about earlier we were on this really nice walk a couple weeks ago and uh, she's a four wing three and um, I'm a four wing five. And so for anyone not knowing three are more, um, they're great on like presenting themselves and it like not in a bad way, but they're more success oriented. And so we were on a walk and I was like, wait, I've realized I'm a five, like a four wing five, which is more introspective and like kind of needs to be alone a lot. And um, she was like, girl, you didn't know that about yourself. And I looked at her and she's like, looks beautiful, like put together, like layered necklaces, clean and everything. And I'm like tromping around and like my hair isn't like brushed and I'm wearing like a weird tie-dye t-shirt. And I was like, oh yeah. Like I didn't look ugly or bad, but like she's put together and I'm like my own weird thing. Um, I love that so much. Yeah. How we can like be this, like we've been told we're the same thing, but there's so many different versions of it. If, if it's helpful, it's helpful. And some people don't like it, which is fine. I, yeah, I love the, that story about you and Aaron is, is perfect. And that's very much my sister, obviously it's not a four, she's a five, but, but there's crossover, a crossover in that flipped, you know, five wing four. And, and one of my favorite qualities I just admire so much and love about fives is just kind of that like I don't know that un, unabashed courage to just uh, like when an 
obviously we don't know what she was, but one of my favorite poets and favorite people is Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And I've read a lot of people kind of speculating that they think she's somewhere in that four to five kind of spectrum. And, um, and she, as a teenager, went to this all-girls Christian boarding school. And part of that was they were supposed to take this, I don't know what you would call it, basically a formal statement of their faith. You know, they were supposed to like sign, they might even have, I think they did have to either sign a document or, or say it out loud before everyone, this, this statement of these things that you were true about God. And she just didn't. She was the one girl in this school of teenage girls that just said like, I, I don't know these things and I can't say them and I'm not going to. And it was a huge deal and she got yeah. in trouble. And that's just something I admire so much about fives because so often like, at least in my experience with him, it's not in a, like, it's not in a moral martyr kind of way that a type one might do it, you know, of like, I, I have to do this morally. It's just like, it's just like, no, like, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. But yeah. I, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing the data I'm taking in, you know, the information I have to work with. And this is a conclusion I've come to, and I'm just going to stand by it. And mm-hmm. I just love the, like, unassuming ability to do that and to just stick by what they believe you know it's really cool I feel like it's a quiet stubbornness I don't think I've like march around and they're like no yes because I can get in my head and I've told you I'm kind of anxious sometimes and so like directness is like I was following you last year so you left social media towards the end of 2020 and I was wondering like, what was your thoughts behind that? And now you're back, um, you're more active, like you're doing a lot of interviews and interacting with, um, and I have more questions about that. But um, what, what, how was leaving social media? And then what did you get from that? Oh, I would recommend it so highly to anyone who, if you love social media and it only is a, serves a good positive purpose in your life, keep it. Like it's not like a blanket statement, everyone should get off social media for a while, but, um, but anyone who struggles with it, or even like questions like, do I struggle with this? Is this maybe not having a good impact in my life? I can't really tell, like just, just try getting off of it for an extended period. And, and basically my original plan was to take an entire year off. I had taken like a month off or two months off in the past, but I was like, I need to just like, find quiet. And it was just this like constant buzz in my life that I couldn't get away from. And, and I intended to be off of it from like September, 2020 to September, 2021. And I stayed off of it from September 1st through the end of 2020. And then I got back on when Cobra Kai came out, just because I started getting all of these messages and, and um, friends, you know, the people I had worked with on the series were tagging me and things. I really wanted to be able to be part of that and not just mm-hmm. like be, you know, this dark, like no lights on, <laughs> no one home presence on social media. So, so I got back on because of that and very much intended to just get back off in like a couple of weeks. And, and I did on Facebook because my time away had helped me identify that so much of the very negative things I was experiencing in relation to social media were coming from Facebook and not necessarily Instagram. There were things about Instagram that weren't maybe super healthy, but that time away also let me um, kind of identify like, okay, where am I, where am I running into the toxic things that aren't working for me? And how can I kind of 
reorient my social media usage and make it into something that does work for me. And on Instagram, I just have been able to find like new accounts that I love following that are so nourishing in a way that is not toxic positivity. That isn't just like, everything is great. Just ignore everything bad in the world. Take no responsibility for your part in anything bad going on and just, you know, focus on the positive. It's not that at all. I've just found um, a few people I love to follow that, that encourage activism and being involved and and social responsibility, but, but in a very like nourishing, um, no better word for it, just nourishing and um, a way that fosters like real community and understanding. And that was so much of what was just awful for me on Facebook was I have all of these people from my childhood and various points in my life that are all from different backgrounds. And I would just see people just talking past each other. Mm. And that's like, (laughs) this is probably showing my control issues as a one, but it's like all I want as an Enneagram one wing two is to make things good and right. And to make people see each other and love each other and be able to understand each other and empathize. And it's like, you cannot do that on Facebook. (laughs) You can't solve every problem you see every day on Facebook. And it was just really exhausting and, and and nor is that my place to be like the Facebook police and tell everyone when they've shared disinformation or when they, you know, but I, but I was trying to do that. Like I was seeing people like share things and I would just try to politely send them a message like, like this article is actually problematic and it's not true. And, and um, I just wanted you to know that because I don't think you'd have wanted to share this if you knew that this was not true and and um and it was just becoming like a full-time job and, and and I realized like this is ridiculous I don't have I'm not responsible for what every single person on my friends list says or doesn't say and even though I very much don't want disinformation to be circulating and people to be being cruel and hateful to each other that's all I felt like Facebook was ever showing me you know, and I did a lot of, I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time learning about social media and about how it works and how the companies make money. And I just realized like, I don't want to contribute to that system. I don't want to be this product that they literally make money off of making me feel frustrated because it keeps me engaged mm-hmm. and it keeps me on there sending people messages. And, and I, if people are good at that and they're and that's their form of activism is helping to kind of correct people and, and bring them back in line and then that is great and that's like no when I said before that I realized it was ridiculous that's no disrespect to anyone who really does like spend and dedicate time to that because that's also a good thing to be doing but for me it was not working and I was like emotionally exhausted and and I I, again, I, I realized that most of that negativity was coming from Facebook, um, but I sort of just got off of all of it to try it out, you know, and, and then when I came back to Instagram because of Cobra Kai, I was able to realize like, this is how I can do it in a way that works for me. I can, I can follow these accounts. I can engage mostly with them. So I'll mostly see their content and with my friends and, you know, people that are making beautiful things that I want to see. Um, and just engaging with accounts that are instructive and enlightening and teaching uh, without generating just like thousands of comments in these threads of strangers arguing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't do well with arguing. <laughs> I don't like it when people are just talking past each other. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's that like that need for things to be right <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the type one or in me at least that like I don't like it when people just are missing the point and they keep mm-hmm. just yeah just saying cruel things to each other and so that time away was so good and so needed like I literally speaking of my hair I have you ever heard of TE no it's like I don't even remember what it stands for but I literally have a it's stress-induced hair loss so like last by the time I got off of social media like I would do yoga and my yoga mat would just be covered in hair and like I went to the dermatologist and, and they confirmed they're like yeah that you have that's TE and I don't like my hair's not falling out now but um but that's what I realized like this is coming from my over over engagement and my trying to like solve all these problems and mediate and help people empathize and see eye to eye where it's really like not I'm not responsible (laughs) I don't have to be doing this you know and so realizing like I can do more good in the world in the long term if I am healthy and if I take a step back and so that's ultimately why I decided to do that and it's been nice that my hair is no longer falling out (laughs) that's been a plus (laughs) No, our bodies like will signal to us. Like when I was moving um, from the UK back to America, I woke up one day and this had never happened. It looked like I had been burned. Like it just, my body was, didn't know that this move had to happen, you know? Um, But like my body was like, this is too much. This is too stressful. Stop whatever you're doing. And I couldn't. one thing that I'm so interested in is I've talked to a lot of actors. I like to have other people on because I love to learn about new stuff, but um, actors I love. And you're the first person who is like a part of a fandom. Like there are super cut edits of your scenes like over with like Justin Bieber's latest song. And it's like zooming in on your face, um, which is so cool. And Cobra Kai has... And that's something I really appreciate is like this super duper loyal fan base. How has it been all of a sudden having these people who feel like not in a bad way, but like protective of you and very excited by you? You know, what has that been like? Honestly, I feel like I got the most perfect ideal version of that possible. And what I mean by that is that I was able to step into this like small but kind of iconic role in a series without there being any preconceived ideas of what this person was, this character was. So it's like there hadn't been a Cobra Kai comic book since the 80s that had the character of Betsy in it and everyone was like dying to see who Betsy was going to be and and everyone in the fandom had already made their like dream cast list and then no matter how perfect you are for the role, according to the producers and casting, there would be a huge portion of that fandom that would be like, oh, that was not who I imagined. That wasn't right. And, you know, and with Betsy, it's like, I was able to step into this really beloved series and this role that I loved and really, you know, just connected to and and admired the character in a way that didn't already have preconceptions from the fans. And people just like, received Betsy and young priest with open arms it seems like Mm. I I just there's been such a 
warm, welcoming, lovely reception from the fans for that whole backstory, that whole storyline that was created in season three. So, so that experience has been all positive and really, really good. And I, I just feel like I had such a colossal stroke of luck in getting to, to be in an iconic, popular globally popular series in that way where the pressure wasn't on <laughs> for me yeah. to be something you know yeah. no that's that's a, like a really great point and a really way good way to look at it is with these shows some of them yeah like you're going to play someone that's already been established or you're playing the younger version of an and you also know who the actor is and so people could be like that doesn't she wouldn't um no that is so cool. What was the audition process like? How many rounds were there? I literally booked it off of a self-tape. No callback. That's amazing. It was amazing and also terrifying because I was like, what if they don't like working with me? What if like, what if there was just something specific about my tape they really liked? And then on set, I, I don't reproduce that one thing that was why they chose me. You know what I mean? So it was like, to book something like that, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's like booking off a self-tape is wonderful and I'm always thrilled when I do, but but that experience particularly was more nerve-wracking for me because I knew that the actor who played Barrett, who played Young Crease, he had gone through like maybe two or three rounds of callbacks in LA. And <laughs> for me, I was like, I'm a stranger. I've never met any of you, but I'm showing up to film these like scenes that are gonna become an important part of this series forever, you know? So, yeah. so that part of it was, was scary having booked off the tape just because I felt like a new kid. You know, it wasn't like, oh, hey, we met at the callback and and maybe we met at several rounds of callbacks and and I, I yeah, I didn't have my bearings on the set. I didn't. I was the new kid on day one and day one was all there was really. <laughs> so, how um how many weeks was it in between booking? Like, was did they maybe need a really fast turnaround or did you just have it for a while? I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, um, that whole like few months portion of my life was sort of chaotic and I had just moved to Nashville in April of that year in 2019 and was kind of figuring out if the whole Atlanta and Nashville thing was going to work. And, mm -hmm. and typically I don't have to go in person for callbacks very often. You know, it happens sometimes, but so much of Atlanta's on tape, you know, mm -hmm. even pre COVID and, for whatever reason, the fates, the audition gods decided that that summer was going to be the summer I was going to have a bunch of in-person things pop up. And that summer, I also had two and a half jobs at the time. And so basically my life for many, many weeks in a row was working four to five days a week, 12 hour days between two jobs. And then the other like three days, almost every weekend I had to drive down to Atlanta. And so I was just like exhausted <laughs> during all those months. It was kind of a blur. And, and when I got the tape for, for Betsy, um, it was somewhere in that, that six months of my life, but I don't remember exactly how long before filming. I filmed it in September and I want to say it was probably, I probably taped the audition in August. So it was probably a couple weeks before or three weeks before. Mm -hmm. um, and time could have played, um, could have factored in. But I do know from one of the writers, he did tell me at the rap party that he had a, a friend who was an actress who they had actually already kind of been thinking like, oh, we'll, we'll probably we'll probably go with her. Or at least he had, I don't know if the team had reached consensus, but, but they requested a tape from her. But he said, when they saw my tape, they just all like 
were like, we have to, we no. have to choose this knew that she, that I was the right one for, for that character, which that made me feel really good. I didn't know that until after we had wrapped, but it's like, if I had known that going in, I would have felt really, I would have felt better <laughs> and affirmed about it. But, but yeah, it just seemed like it was sort of felt meant to be on their end. Yeah. I, um, as an, as an actor and, um, it's like one of my pet peeves so I feel kind of weird saying this, but you know how they're always like, what's your type? And people have told me like a Michael, Sarah, never been kissed, but maybe attacked by someone. And they're like, that's your type. And I'm like, feel like characters like Betsy are probably the roles you usually go in for. Um, what has it been like kind of that the world kind of like, because you, you book them, you know? So that's good that you're being seen for them. What is it like? to kind of for the world to see you one way which seems similar to you as I'm getting to talk to you do you know what I'm talking about people being like this is what you're like Emily you know yeah yeah um that's a really good question I I don't mind being typecast and that's probably just because I think it would be really frustrating to be typecast if I felt like it was something like I'm not interested in playing roles like that I don't want to be typecast as that but I really liked Betsy. And that's, if you think I'm similar to her, I'm flattered because I, I very much thought she was just a lovely soul and compassionate and also like courageous. And, and she had such a limited amount of time on screen, but just her few lines, I really, I really liked her and admired her. And, and so I don't mind being typecast in that way, but I also like, I never, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is in me that I, I don't book contemporary things very often. And it's odd because it's not just like, oh, well, I always book the sweet period, nice girl character. It's not that. Like in the past year, I've, I have only done period projects. So in the past, well, a little more than that, year and a half since Cobra Kai, I've, I've done four things and it's been Cobra Kai, which was 60s. Then the next thing I did was a small role in a 1920s era film. And the next one was a Western, like 1880s Western. And the, the very last thing I did um, was 1930s, very different character from any of the others. And so, so it's like, I don't know what it is, but I something about period roles. It's not that I'm being like typecast into a certain character, but there's something... Mm period that I do tend to book and and that's like fine by me I, maybe someday I will get to play a contemporary role but <laughs> um but I never ever like I'm actually I, I never ever have wanted to be like put in the ingenue pretty girl box ever mm -hmm. like that I really I want to stay out of that and and I had, like, I've had a manager in the past. We did, we, our paths diverged and partly because of this, but like I had a manager in the past who was hell bent on me fixing my teeth. And I just, I was like, I, I have never thought at that time, <laughs> since then I've thought a lot about my teeth. Yeah. But at the time I was like, I've never thought about my teeth. I realize I have crooked teeth. Like I, I consciously, I can look at them and say, yep, those are some crooked teeth, but they're serving their function as teeth and they're healthy and they've never bothered me or been something I was insecure about. And, and I kind of just like told that manager, this might not seem like an overtly intrusive or even sexualized part of a woman's body to ask them to change. But if I can't set the line somewhere, mm -hmm. then when a manager wants me to do something like 
physically change my body, get a boob job, whatever it is, then how am I going to set that line then? Because for me, the, the bar has to be, I only change something about my body if I want to. Mm-hmm. And if I let any manager say, well, you're going to work more, you're going to be more castable. And that's what, how you know you should, you should change your body. There's always going to be someone who thinks that something about you would be more castable if you changed it. And so for me, I just like had to draw a hard line. And I think I really offended that, that manager, bless their heart. But, but for <laughs> me, that was like very, I know again, that it's, it's maybe not on the surface as offensive as saying you need to fix your, your boobs or your butt yeah. or whatever. For me, it's, it's still saying like change something about yourself that you see no problem with. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like that expectation that to tell stories, you have to look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's so sad, but also it's so common that there are even things that you don't have a problem with, or you might even, and it's also, that's so the industry for anyone listening is everybody has this magic thing that they're going to tell you is the reason you're not booking, you know, like if your teeth were different and then you'll change your teeth, but guess what? Like, Honestly, things probably wouldn't have changed. And I've been told, like this school I went to, I was really proud of it. And now I've been told they're like, oh, well, take that off your resume. It's actually intimidating. Like people don't want to see that you've done this. And then I'm like, it's like, okay, then if I took it off, then someone else would be like, oh my gosh, you have to put it on. And everybody, I was telling someone that's not from the industry. I said like, line up 20 casting directors slash agents slash successful actors and you can have all of them look at me and all of my credentials have them write down what I need to change and you will not get a consistent answer everybody has an opinion on what is not marketable about you or and and it's just for so long I've been running and that was one of the reasons my anxiety about industry was so bad because um, because everybody had a different reason. Everybody had a headshot that they were like, Rebecca, you have to use this one. And then someone else yeah. was like, Rebecca, ooh, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think that's where my five wing comes into play because I'm not as malleable as maybe I should be. People are like, well, you have to be on Clubhouse four hours a day. And then I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> If you yes. want me to be on Clubhouse for four hours, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, that quiet governance that is serving you very well in this. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear. Oh, fingers, fingers <laughs> crossed. Okay, so one of my favorite things to ask actors because it's fun is audition horror stories. Um, do you have any for me? Oh my goodness! The <laughs> so- thing isn't an audition, but that's pretty. I haven't heard that one before. Um, yeah. Did it shake you yeah. up for very long? It it definitely upset me. And as a whole other long story, I feel like I have rambled a lot. So I'm really sorry, but. Oh my I, gosh, no. You're, I actually think we're doing great. <laughs> a lot of stuff can go off. I love everything you've said. Thank you. I just had the like fleeting thought a moment ago that like, 
Rebecca always chooses these beautiful, dynamic, concise, like 60 second snippets from people's interviews and she is not gonna find that in this one because <laughs> it takes me a year to develop a thought. So I'm sorry about that. No, but, I love um, it. No, the, the whole thing with the manager did definitely shake me up. And I, I rarely, this is an exclusive interview here because I almost never mentioned that. I've never shared that, I shared that on social media with anyone, but um, and the reason is just because like, I don't, I don't believe in like shading people or, you know, and that, that manager was, came to, to me at such a good uh, part in my, played such a good part in my life. And, and there were so many things about that relationship I really learned from, and I'm so grateful our paths crossed. And it ultimately made me so much more confident in, in myself as an artist, like how I did that, like this huge global company. Like when that manager picked me up, it was a big deal. My, my little like Atlanta agent was like, this is, this is big. And like, we were both so excited. And like, I let them, I let that manager walk away because I was willing to just be like, no, <laughs> like I have to draw the line somewhere or it's never going to get drawn. And I'm, it's going to be harder and harder to draw it later on, you know? And there have definitely been times in my career where, and after, after I lost that manager, I was just like, oh, like, this is kind of it. I think I've reached the end of the road. I tried, I learned some lessons along the way and I'm not going down this path anymore, but, but I, to my own surprise, I've like come out on the other side of this with my career being growing and thriving. And like, I have a long way to go in my own mind, but it's still at a better place than it's ever been. And that's after I let this big company, I was so honored to be on their roster. I let them, you know, they walked away from me and, and a huge part of that. I don't want to speak for them and say like, cause they may be like, no, 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 that wasn't why we dropped you, but it did seem to play a big, big role in why they did. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> audition. Oh, uh, the last thing I was going to say about that before audition mm -hmm. horror stories was just that, Part of the irony of the whole situation with the manager wanting me to desperately wanting me to fix my teeth was that this manager had the idea when they picked me up that that I fit this certain type of actress and that the actresses like me were actresses like Kate Blanchett and Rachel Weiss and um, I can't remember the others maybe Marion Cotillard all these kind of like high class actresses who play these leading lady roles and the manager essentially told me like you can't play those right now because you have the messed up teeth of a character actor and that's a direct quote <laughs> and then basically like you this is your essence is these like high class rich you know intelligent women but your teeth are they look like a poor stupid person <laughs> and I was like I was like how odd to be told that like you aren't getting cast because your shell that the world sees doesn't fit who you actually are. And I was like, wait, but if I am those things, then my shell is those things. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If I am those things, then I can look this way and this has to match them. This has to match that essence because that's who I am. And also my messed up teeth are who I am, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So, so that was a really, that was a big learning experience for me. And I'm, it was painful at the time, but I'm so glad that I had it. Yeah. That actually um, reminds me of like, my dad lost my bottom retainers. So they're not perfect on the bottom. 
Um, and I remember once there was this weird shot of Rachel McAdams, who I feel like fits in that kind of category you were talking about. And her bottom are like, a few were like twisted a little bit wrong. Um, and I don't know, maybe she's changed it, but it wasn't, it was kind of a recent movie. I don't remember what it was, but her bottom teeth were kind of crooked. And I re- actually remember clocking that and I wasn't insecure about it. I was like, wow bottom teeth are a little crooked and then I was yeah. like oh that's funny and I've thought about that since and so it's interesting because once again that was one person's opinion yeah. on going like oh this is what's holding you back and it's not right. holding Rachel McAdams back you know like everybody's yeah. got an opinion um so true so true and and you know it's like I don't know for me I, one of the reasons I also hesitate to say this is like, this is zero, zero judgment on anyone who loves to do things like fixing their teeth or getting Botox or like whatever physical things you do to change your appearance that bring you joy and that you're doing from a place of, I, I love this for my body and I love changing my appearance in this way. Or, you know, like your body, it's almost like a work of art in itself, you know, and we, we express that in different ways. And and so that's, this is zero judgment on anyone who's always hated their teeth and finally got to fix them, you know, and it's like someday I might fix my teeth. I might straighten them. It can cause problems sometimes for people to have perfect teeth. So it's like down the road, I might end up doing that. But, but just the idea that to be a storyteller in our culture, you have to have this certain look or this certain level of, of attractiveness that was so I don't know I just felt everything in me like rebelled against that it just felt so wrong so and since then like last year I did a western and I played this scrappy teenage girl like living off the land and surviving on her own in the wilderness and I'm like you know what I'm glad I didn't have perfect teeth she would never have had perfect teeth (laughs) no that's actually something I've heard mentioned um uh, do you like Pride and Prejudice, the 2006 Keira Knightley version? Yes, I, I didn't grow up with that one. I grew up with the BBC with Colin okay. Firth. Cool. Um, but, but I have seen that a few times. I, I just remember the dad character who I don't remember. Sorry, this is just about teeth, I guess. Um, <laughs> but he has like Hollywood white teeth now. And I was listening to the director's commentary of it. And he's laughing really big in the last scene. I can like see it so clearly. And his teeth are just like white, <laughs> perfect pillars. And he's covering up his his mouth as he's oh. laughing. And I don't know if he was doing it because his teeth were unnaturally perfect for the time period. Or maybe he just laughs with his hand covering or something. But the director like pointed out, he was like, yeah, he's like, that's one of the things, you know. And like, those are such Hollywood teeth, you know, which it they're like blindingly white. If anyone goes back and watches it, it is a little distracting. <laughs> so anyways, um, that's so funny. Teeth man. Okay. Audition horror stories. Audition horror stories. So <laughs> I'm sure there's more than this. There's a few that stick out in my mind and one, one is probably not fair to share as a horror story because it all you know all swelled it in swell and it ended up ending well but but I early in the days after I'd gotten my agent in Atlanta I was starting to go out for things in the region there was quite a lot happening in Virginia Mm -hmm. and at the time it always had in-person callbacks so there was one 
like summer where I drove back and forth to Virginia a few times and for callbacks. And um, on one particular time, my, I think I want to say it was like an eight or nine hour drive to wherever I was going. So it was a pretty significant drive. And my mom came with me and we like paid for a hotel in order to be, for me to be able to do this callback. And it was a little commercial, like super simple, one or two lines. I go in after this like all day road trip. I go in and I, I do the scene and the director's like, okay, okay, cool. Um, try it this way. And I was like, okay. And then I just did exactly what I had done before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like did not take their notes at all. And just like, for whatever reason, it was so spaced, not, you know, I, like I was hearing the direction and it just wasn't translating and I was not doing anything they asked. And I left the room like mortified, like what just happened? And so much so that I like went in the bathroom to have a good cry, ended up accidentally going in the men's bathroom and like bumping into a man. Oh no. And I the women's and men cry. <laughs> So it was just not a good uh, moment for me. And then oddly, the next day, to my complete surprise, I got a call that I booked the role in this little commercial. Yeah. So kind of what I was saying before about self-tapes and me like learning to not nitpick them, it's like sometimes my own judgment of, of my work, like I have no idea mm. what where the producer or casting director is coming from. And they might see something totally different in it than, than I think mm-hmm. I put out <laughs> that was obviously the case for that one I will say like I auditioned for one I want to say the name of the role was like female victim or something like that and mm-hmm. it was it was like some kind of sexual assault scene I don't remember the details but it was in person a callback I, mm-hmm. I guess my self-tape was was enough to get me a callback and it was just the most awkward unpleasant experience to like have a table full of people this is their job like sitting there and you're like up against the wall your character's name is female victim literally all you're doing is like screaming maybe saying one line yeah um that was there was nothing particularly horrible about my interaction with them but just the experience of auditioning for something like that was very unpleasant and not one that i I would like to repeat. So there's definitely things like that. And it's, this came up in your conversation with Erica. Yeah. I wanted to like, I wanted to just like smack that teacher you talked about, who's basically trying to get an emotional response out of you mm. by torturing you. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. Like I, I despise that part of acting that, or the people that think like, oh, you're an actor. And if you're really dedicated to being an artist, you're going to be okay with being demeaned and tortured mm-hmm. and like sacrificing yourself on the altar of great art. And I'm not, <laughs> like, no. maybe I'll never be a great artist because I'm not okay with that. <laughs> uh, like what is a great artist? I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm wanting to get um, my, like my certification in um, intimacy coordination and stuff. And because like one of the number one things about resistance towards it is um, directors will be like, oh, I want it in the moment. You know, I want it like raw and I want it, uh, but then, um, but then there are like, so uh, like, um, like Nicole Kidman in Big Little Lies. She literally was like proud of this. And then she won, I think the Golden Globe for it, where her scene partner who she did say over and over was so kind and so lovely and didn't want to hit her, but she was like, no, this needs to be real. And so their fights in this like physically abusive marriage 
and um, sexually abusive marriage, he actually like hurt her like that. He, she like told him like, it needs to be real. And then she was like, oh my gosh, I understand now what it's like for women that have gone through this. And I'm just like, cool. Like we're not watching you act. We're watching you get like you, Nicole Kidman are being beat up, you know, or if, if it's like, and that was one of the things when I work with actors, I get like, so passionate about this is I'm like, if you're letting something you're not comfortable with happen to you, we're not watching art, we're watching sexual assault. So like not to put blame on you, but do not think if you, if you are letting this happen, do not stroke your artist ego. Um, No, this is sexual assault because you are not comfortable. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's so just like, I mean, sometimes, yeah, for auditions, we need to like put ourselves out there. But um, I think actors are just treated as so dispensable, you know, Um, because, yeah, I've had um, one of my friends was dropped by her agency because she said she wasn't comfortable doing a certain thing. And they were like, great. No, 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 you won't. You won't be made to do that. And then she actually was going to and they submitted her anyways. She thought they had come to an understanding and then they were like it was going to be her like big break and she was in the last two and it was like all my hard work for years is going to pay off. And then they were like, Oh wait, you know, like it is going to be this. And she said, she was like, no, you lied to me. And then they dropped her, you know, like. So frustrating to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many, anyways, I obviously could talk about this for days, but we've all. Yeah. Okay. that's good luck with your getting pursuing your certification because yeah. that is something that's so needed and so valuable and I think will improve. The more we can get intimacy coordinators on set, the more so many actors' experiences of working will be just dramatically improved. So I think that is amazing that you're passionate about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm really interested to hear your answer to this. Um, so one thing I like didn't ask forever, which is so silly, but the beginning of my Instagram account, it's called the search for pink, which for me, I believe what I used to have in my bio is like the search for joy and whimsy in the everyday life. Um, very much like what we were saying earlier is like, it's just me at the end of the day with your Oscar crying and going like, what does it all mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so what, what are the little things that you put in place for the days even though we've had this conversation and we agree, we still have those crap days where, yeah. you know, that happens. So what, what do you do for yourself when that happens? Yeah. Okay. So there's kind of maybe two different versions of things yeah. I help myself with. And one is more like ritual things I do, physical things I do. And the other are like thoughts or ideas that I come back to and, and, like like the the door experience in Scotland you know it's like I have these certain like archive things that I keep in my my files about like about being an artist and like sticking sticking it out when it's tough and and one of the things that I come back to in those files are just stories of people who I really admire and have done beautiful things in life and in the world and and who have had really, really dark, hard times as well. And, and one of my favorite stories that just illustrates it so perfectly in my mind is 
Clara Barton, who founded the American Red Cross. She was became this famous Civil War nurse during the war and, and really like just did incredible things, taking it upon herself. She didn't have the background or the experience necessary. No one had ever done this before. So it wasn't like, am I qualified to do this? She just took it upon herself to figure out how to get aid to, to soldiers who needed it. She would literally go to the battlefield and save hundreds and hundreds of lives and coordinated other people who worked with her and and then went on to be a pioneer in women's rights after that i mean really just like the civil war was this big catastrophe where she kind of found her calling and like that set off the rest of her life of, of doing this really meaningful work whether it was in nursing and helping save lives or later in women's rights and other activism and work like that but but she um about 10 years before the start of the Civil War, she wrote, I can't remember if it was a letter to a friend or, or in her journal, um, but, but basically just said, I can't think of a single living creature that would be better off, that ha is better off because I'm here. I can't think of any reason for, my, for me to go on living. I don't contribute anything. You know, just this really dark, sad period in her life when she felt like she had no value. And I'm not saying that her value is based on those accomplishments and those things that she did. She obviously had inherent worth just as a human being. And she was just as valuable then when she felt like she wasn't then later after she accomplished everything she did in her life. But, but something about that is really, really inspiring to me. Just knowing like, if she only knew, you know, like if she only knew, just hold on. Like there are events in motion and things that haven't happened yet that are going to lead to you being in a position to be able to step up and say, what can I do? And and experiences that she'd had and gifts that she had were able to all kind of converge and and help her be able to do good in, in the world. And there are definitely a lot of living creatures that benefited by her being there. And so it's stories like that, that like, if I need an intellectual, you know, <laughs> reminder, that like, okay, stick it out. Um, it's things like that I come back to. And also I, I recently posted about this, so you may have seen it, but but there is, was a singer who was one of the most popular singers in the 30s named Annette Hanshaw. And she yes, just has yes. this delightful, warm voice. They, they always described her, they're like, with a voice like sweet honey. And that's like exactly <laughs> what her voice sounds like. And, um, and she was so good, but she never thought she was good. And that belief inhibited her career and eventually ended up ending it because she just had crippling stage fright and always felt like what she did wasn't good or good enough. And I listened to her and I think everything she did was so beautiful. And I wish that there was even more of it because she hadn't, her career hadn't prematurely ended because she never felt good enough. And so I think of her too, whenever I make something that I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> I am not an artist. This is terrible garbage. I, I think of her and just like how wrong I feel like she was about herself. And that just reminds me, even if I'm objectively not wrong and what I made was bad, it just reminds me that like, I can be wrong about my own work sometimes. And I need to stay open and humble to the possibility that what I'm doing and what I've done is even better than I can imagine <laughs> and has value, you know, in some way that I can't conceive of, has value to someone else in a way that I could never conceive of. Um, so there's little like archived experiences and thoughts like that in my mind that I come back to. And then as far as like things that I do, 
really just, it's going to sound like cliche and contrived, but it honestly is just like turning my focus outward. And I don't even mean that as like, ignore your problems and go help other people. And like, that can be really unhealthy too. But, but if I just, my garden is such a simple way to do that. Like if I'm really struggling and I am really stuck or down on myself, whatever it is in, in my art or career, if I can just like go work in the garden and not worry about it, not fixate on it for a while and just fixate on the way that this little sprout has come up or this little bloom has opened or, or oh, that, that isn't like climbing up the trellis the way that it needs to let me help it, you know, tiny things like that, that I can just like pour my energy into that also like make my world around me a little bit more beautiful at the same time too. And, and there's so many other ways the garden for me is just a good example of one that works really well for me. There's something really nice about getting my hands in the dirt that always makes me feel better. So, so yeah, just finding one tiny way I can, help someone with something or make the world a little more beautiful. And I mean that in literally the tiniest way ever, <laughs> planting a flower, you know, little simple things like that. Those are kind of the rituals that I, that I go back to that help me find the joy and the whimsy. Yeah. I, I love that. And as you were talking, I'm not a gardener, but kind of like, I don't think you can garden angry. You know, I can't <laughs> like, I can't really see you outside just being like, Oh, oh, like, I mean, I don't know if like rabbits ate everything or I don't know, but yeah, I don't think it's kind of like tap dancing, which I'm not a tap dancer, but you also can't be sad with tap shoes on. It's just <laughs> absolutely impossible, you know? Um, so no, that's a great answer. Cause I think, and it's finding those like little things that I'm also sure it like takes up your whole brain, you know, Yeah, which is so great. It does. It does. It's a, such a nice, simple conduit for your energy, you know, and you feel like you are accomplishing something and you're, you know, shepherding these plants and helping them grow and, and, and also in beautifying the world around you at the same time. And, and yeah, I love all my little like creatures that live in my yard. And at this point you were talking about rabbits, like, mm -hmm. you know, attacking your garden. I don't even get mad. I'm just like, I make this garden for you guys now. <laughs> if I get to eat something from them, that's great. <laughs> but I just let the squirrels and the birds and the rabbits enjoy and and it usually evens out because I have more than I need anyway. So I'm happy yeah. to share. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, no, that's true. And um, I think that's really beautiful. Well, um, Emily, thank you so much for talking to me. I, um, when I was recording the intro, I was like, I probably would have been able to meet Emily by now if it wasn't for COVID. I would have like, next time you were in town, I would have been like, you have to meet me. Um, yeah. <laughs> just because I'm just in person. Yeah. And so I'm really glad that like this has been able to kind of be the the precursor to that. And I really looking, I really look forward to um, finally meeting you in person, hopefully sooner rather than later. Same to you. And I just wanted, I didn't get a chance to say sooner, but I love everything you share and I love the way you see the world. And you, I think when we, when I first started following you, whenever that was, you were with your sisters a lot and you were posting maybe at your family's home, like out yeah. on the land there. And, and just, I love and so connect to everything you share. Cause I, I have three sisters come from a big family. also have a brother and 
And so much of what I grew up with was, you know, Jane Austen or Little Women or the Bronte sisters, like all yeah. of these classic stories focused on these families and this like sisterly connection and love. And so everything you shared just like would always warm my heart and bring me so much joy because I love I love the relationship you have with your siblings Thank and, you. and the way they're, you see them. They're um they're my they're everything. I mean they're not perfect. They are flawed, but um but yeah they they're just you know, like when, I don't, not all the time, but siblings, like y'all often are so different, but you really are cut out of like the same cloth, you know, yeah. you really are. There's this thing that no one will understand about like your parents and your upbringing. Um, even if y'all don't always agree, that is really special. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you connected with that because they're my if anyone's going to see any piece of me, I think my siblings kind of show where my heart is really at. Um, I'm so I appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing what you do with the world and sharing your time with me and having me on. This has been really nice. Oh, yay. I'm so glad. And um, I am very impressed. You're like the, the Cobra Kai fandom is real and um, that you've, you're like getting the interviews and you're just so lovely. So I'm so glad that more people are getting to meet you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. You're so kind. And this was really lovely. This, like, this conversation nourished my heart. <laughs> so I thank you for sharing so many lovely thoughts with me. This isn't possible. But if you get to the end of this interview and you don't like Emily Palmer, which is not happening, because of course you do, um, she's so charming and lovely and it just it really does like radiate off the screen because I like I've seen her stuff and it you really do see this lovely person I was just talking to you also experience that um, when you're watching her on screen all right guys um, this I will keep you up to date with all Emily Palmer news um, but while we're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe. Um, you're about to open up your phone and click on the, another podcast to listen to or some music. So while you're at it, how about you give us a little rate? Um, five stars, please, and thank you. Um, thank you so much for asking. I would prefer five stars. And uh, that keeps my ego going long enough to keep making episodes. I do it because I love it, um, but also some ego stroking is really nice. Okay, I love you guys. Have a great Monday. If you want to say anything, drop me an email. Um, and yes, I love you. And we'll talk soon. All right, bye-bye.